Well, earlier last week, in thinking about the likelihood of Karen going home to be with the Lord, I thought it might be appropriate to take a one-week break to talk about joy in the midst of sorrow. And even as we grieve the loss of our dear sister, I want to encourage us with what God says about the link between sorrow and joy. And I want to answer the question of whether we can be joyful when we grieve or only when sorrow is over. So our passage today is John 16, 16 to 24. I'd like to encourage you to turn there and stand as we read God's holy and inspired word. John 16, 16 to 24. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, as we study and understand these words, I pray for insight and understanding. Help us to apply this well to our own lives and circumstances, and help us to praise you, to worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before we address Jesus' words and answer the question of whether it's possible to be joyful in the midst of sorrow, I want to take a moment to define what is meant by joy. And to do that, I want to quickly survey some passages that speak of joy. The first being Psalm 16, beginning in verse 4, where we read, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So according to David, joy comes from the Lord. David also speaks of a fullness of joy, which we hear echoed 
in Jesus' words at the very end of our passage where he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So joy, which we have yet to fully define, comes from God. That means the definitions for joy, like happiness, are insufficient because a person outside of God can be happy for a time, but not truly joyful. And before we leave that Psalm 16 passage, note at the beginning, David contrasts the fullness of joy to be had from God with the multiplication of sorrows that result from running after idols. And this suggests a first part of the definition for joy, namely that joy results from the fulfillment of our needs and even desires that only God can provide, foremost in the giving of himself to us. As James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then there's this next passage to look at, which is 1 Timothy 4, where we read, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And you notice that everything that God created is good. It's man's perverted use of the good creation that is evil. And notice also what James and Paul add to our thoughts from Psalm 16. We receive things from God even now during this life and not just an eternity future. How we receive them is important with thanksgiving, filtered through God's word and prayer. And so we might therefore add to the first part of our definition for joy this thought when God fulfills our needs and desires part of joy is receiving that gift with gratitude and using it for the holy purposes that God reveals in his word. And this eliminates superficial happiness that people can experience through the accumulation of possessions and self-exalting accomplishments. The believer, at least the one pursuing the greatest joy, wants to experience not so much the building up of himself, but rather the goodwill of the Lord and the increase of his glory as the psalmist Asaph expresses in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And you contrast that with 1 Timothy 6.10, where Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so you can see how a love for the world can so easily result in piercing oneself through with many sorrows. And what's the difference between Psalm 73 and 1 Timothy 6? In Psalm 73, we desire the Lord. In 1 Timothy 6, we desire the world. The one results in joy, the other results in sorrow. And of course, one of the important things that we've learned in our study of Romans this past year is how a desire for God while we are enslaved to sin isn't natural for us. To change our desires, we must experience the intervening power and grace of the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 12, 
we further learn that no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. As you start putting those together, what we've been looking at, you realize that the Holy Spirit not only changes our affections so that we desire God, but makes clear to us the abundant blessings that God is giving us. We learn about our future inheritance, but also what is available to us right now in this life. He makes us, for example, aware of the mercy that God had towards us while we were yet his enemies. In fact, the Spirit is the one who enables us to receive things with thanksgiving. And that leads us to a third aspect of joy, and that is that joy is the comprehension made possible by the Holy Spirit of the value of the things that God has given us. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Right? Comparing, gaining in Christ and sharing in his good pleasure and blessings, the things of this world are as trash. And you can see, therefore, how woefully short a dictionary definition of joy becomes without reference to God. Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition is this. Joy is a feeling of great pleasure or happiness that comes from success, good fortune, or a sense of well-being. And that's not it at all, is it? Quite to the contrary, we've learned that far too often things like the pursuit of success and good fortune pierce us through with many sorrows. In summary, then, our working biblical definition of joy is this. Joy results from the fulfillment of our needs and even desires that only God can provide. Joy is the receiving of God's gifts with gratitude and the using of them for his holy purposes, which he reveals in his word. And joy is only made possible through the Holy Spirit who enables us to fully comprehend the value of what God has given us. And so that... That work, that foundation laying, helps us answer the question of whether joy is possible in the midst of sorrow. Or is it only possible after sorrow is over? In other words, as an example, can we be joyful right now in the sorrow of the loss of our sister? Or must we wait until all sorrows end when we are with the Lord before we can truly be joyful? And I want to suggest that's what this morning's passage is about. The disciples learned that they were about to lose their Lord to the cross. And as a result, Jesus told them, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Jesus says that the world will rejoice as they are crucifying him. And of course, given the biblical definition of joy, we know that that wasn't rejoicing as the Bible defines it, it was a form of celebration. And in reality, it would result in their sorrow. 
But as for the disciples, they would be sorrowful in a different way. Sorrowful over the loss of their master and friend. And Jesus tells them that their sorrow will turn to joy. When? Jesus says, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And this is important, friends. The disciples would soon see the risen Lord. And when they did, Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you ever again. There would not be any circumstance that would disrupt their joy. And think about what that implies. Because were these men going to start leading blissful, carefree lives from that point forward? Not at all, right? They were about to experience the most difficult things they'd ever faced. Many of them would even be martyred. They would be hated, despised, lose one another. They'd be rejected by family members. They would spend the rest of their lives pursued and persecuted, but they were loved by Jesus. And whatever they asked from the Father in His name would be given to them. And the greatest of those gifts was God himself, as promised by Jesus, who said that he would continue to abide with them, they would abide in him, and the Holy Spirit would indwell them. And as we read in Romans 8, nothing that the world might attempt to do could separate them from that love, and therefore their joy would be full, lacking nothing. So the first answer I have for you is that absolutely you can and do have perfect joy, even in the midst of sorrow. As Paul implies in Philippians 4.4, it is possible to rejoice in all things. It's interesting, Paul's commanding, we've been doing our uh, Wednesday night midweek Bible study in Turlock in the book of Philippians, and it's interesting how many times in that letter... Paul describes the difficulty that he faces, right? In fact, this this verse in Philippians 4, to rejoice in all things, comes right after a comment in the previous chapter of how he's in tears over those to whom he preached the gospel who rejected it. In Romans 9, you may remember how Paul described his great sorrow and anguish, he says right at the beginning of that chapter over his lost brothers and sisters. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 9, he says he has unceasing anguish. So it must be possible to be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. And the key is in the definition. Our joy comes from the Lord. Our sorrows come from the relationships and circumstances around us. Does that make sense? Our position in Christ is secure, and we are comforted by what God is doing in us and giving us now, as well as what he is preparing for our future. And even in the most difficult of circumstances, God is with us, blessing us, strengthening us, supplying our every need through Christ. And having said all that, I want to stretch us even more this morning, because everything that I've said so far is, in a sense, self-oriented. We've been talking about joy as a result of what God gives us. 
But there is a joy described in the Bible closely related to this that comes from what we see God doing in and through others. This is a joy that is described by Paul in Philippians chapter 4. And in that chapter, Paul tells the Philippians that he, that he sought the fruit of the Holy Spirit that profited them as believers. The Philippians had given sacrificially of their, of their resources to help him as he was imprisoned in, in Rome. And in doing so, they became what Paul describes as a sweet-smelling aroma, well-pleasing to God. And this worship of theirs, because that's the language of worship, that sweet-smelling aroma, well-pleasing to God, their worship through service of him pleased and fulfilled Paul. He was joyful in seeing the fruit of his labor manifested in the Philippians. And we see that type of joy best illustrated in Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, ask yourself, what was that joy? Endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As author John Piper has written, the greatest labor of love that ever happened was possible because Jesus pursued the greatest imaginable joy. Namely, he writes, the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of a redeemed people. And that last comment is particularly important. The Son of God had, from eternity past, possessed glory which he gave up for a time the exercise of, why? Well, we'll let Jesus speak for himself. In John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the reason Christ gave up that exercise of his glory for a time was that he might bring us, the redeemed, to glory. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that, that you may have life and have it even more abundantly. So for the joy set before him, the joy of seeing the fruit of his sacrificial labor in those he came to serve, Christ endured the cross. Endured the sorrows. Why is the fruit of our own service so wonderful? So joy-producing that in every difficult circumstance we can do what Paul says and rejoice in all things. It is because the fruit of our service is Christ being formed in others. Which is to say that God works the impossible. We, we proclaim the good news. We exhort we plant seed, we cultivate, whatever it is, but the Lord brings the increase. He brings life from death. And seeing the sovereign grace of God at work through you for the benefit and good of others as you mature in Christ and become more and more conformed to his mindset and seeing that image reflected ever more resplendently in you is a wonderful experience for the one who is investing their life in you. And if you haven't experienced that yet with others, then you have not yet experienced one of the most joyful blessings available to the believer. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not I, but the grace of Christ that's in me that produces these results. 
2 Corinthians 3 writes, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, our sufficiency is from God. And then Romans 15, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience through the Gentiles. So, you know, this, this joy is all related, isn't it? How God has blessed us, not only personally with salvation, but that love that he has shed abroad in us fills us, overflows to others. We see God working through us to bring life from death. We see the same types of results being produced in others. And in all things, God gets the glory and we are made joyful. That's why you can find that joy in the missionaries who said that they hadn't sacrificed a thing in their labors. We look at their lives and their hardships and their frustrations and their many, many sorrows. If you've read the biography of Adoniram Johnson, you know, Judson, you know how many sorrows he faced. Life of ch- children, spouse, friends. And yet, through all of that, we say, I don't know if I could make that type of a sacrifice, even when we see the results of what God hap- did. But here's what David Livingstone said, 1857. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Imagine that. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? What's he saying there? Since every moment redeemed, right? Every moment invested in something good, seeing God at work through you. Away with the word and such a view and with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. It is rather a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, now and then. Yeah, probably more like every week. With a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, it may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. It's an incredible attitude. And then you think of another missionary like Jim Elliott, who on January 8th, 56, together with four companions were killed by the Aka Indians of Ecuador. And all of a sudden, right in, in a moment, right at the very beginning of their missionary effort, four wives lose husbands and nine children lose fathers. And yet, what does Elizabeth Elliot write? She says, the world calls this a nightmare of tragedy, but doesn't recognize the truth of Jim's life creed. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so an extension of this joy that we experience because of what God is doing in and through others is the joy that we experience even in loss because we know that the person whom we have lost is a child of God and is now experiencing joy eternally without sorrow. 
One of the great promises of the scriptures is that God will raise his people to eternal life. It was the Christian's confidence in the resurrection that led a second century Greek Aristides to comment why he thought Christianity had become so successful in only a century. He wrote, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice. They offer thanks to God and they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. Such an attitude was foreign to a man like Aristides, who, like many Greeks and Romans, didn't have a concept of heaven. Rather, his concept of the afterlife was of permanently disembodied spirits freed from physical existence who had no definable purpose. You know, just think about floating around, kind of trying to imitate life as it was on earth, but, have, but having no real substance to it. In fact, the Greeks were careful to point out the physical order is corrupt, only the spiritual is pure, so to them the idea of a resurrected body was not attractive. But Christianity presents a different picture. What happens to those who have died? Philippians 1.21 tells us, for to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. Hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And in a similar passage, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with Jesus Christ even before the resurrection. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus tells the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And that word paradise is a Greek word taken from the Persian word paradise, which refers to a walled park or an enclosed royal garden. That's what they used as a word to identify the king's private garden that was enclosed. It was, it was well-ordered. It was a beautiful place. By the time of Jesus, that word was being used in Greek to describe a restored garden of Eden. Often in the Old Testament, we would see God motivating the Israelites with the thoughts of restoration of the order and the fellowship of Eden. So what does that mean for the thief? It at least meant that they, in that very day, would be in the presence of God in a state of fellowship, an order and beauty, if not even something resembling Eden, he would not be unconscious, but rather would be with Jesus. And that's where Karen is at this very moment. And so part of our joy in the midst of sorrow is that she sees her heavenly Father face to face, that she has the privilege to join with the saints in the worship of the risen Christ and throw her crown at his feet, that every pain, that every struggle has become swallowed up in the triumphant victory over death because she was redeemed from her sin. Am I telling you not to grieve? Not at all. 
As I said at the very beginning, with regard to our morning's passage, Jesus told his disciples that they would never lack for joy again, but it would indeed happen side by side with various trials and struggles. Christian joy does not mean that we don't feel pain or that we, when we feel it, don't have tears. As Psalm 35 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And there are evenings of weeping. And even Paul says in Romans 12:15 to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 writes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And probably the best way I can state the relationship between these two is that they are anchored in different realities. Tears and sorrow for the believer are connected with death and loss, with pain, even the lost state of those whom we love. God promises one day he will wipe away those tears. Every one of those kinds of tears. And then adds in Revelation 21, 4, as we read in the liturgy this morning, that death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. So tears and sorrow are anchored in the reality of earthly relationship and life. Joy is anchored in the sovereign mercy and gracious blessings of God. We have been forgiven. We have been declared just because of our faith in and union with Christ. Our sins will never again be called to mind by God in judgment. And we are joint heirs with his son. We are joyful. If you have not turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, then you need to do so today. The peace and confidence and joy of Jesus Christ can be yours. You can discover for yourself what Paul said about death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is the sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, then you need to consider your joy. Just because this joy is yours does not automatically mean that you are experiencing it as frequently or intensely as you should. As Paul says multiple times in Philippians, I've already mentioned it myself, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He feels like he has to say it over and over and over again in that letter. As a believer, you need to meditate upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to participate in the Lord's table every week. You need to be reminded of God's good favor. You need to hear the blessings of God preached every week. But you must also learn to do this in your daily life. In the life of your mind, remember that the Holy Spirit indwells you so that He may use His Word to help you comprehend the magnificence of what it means to say that every promise is yes in Jesus. Of what it means to say that he goes to prepare a place for you. And no mind has conceived or I have seen what that is. But the Spirit reveals it. What better result could await you than that inheritance of the heavenly Jerusalem and the restored earth and the eternal presence of God 
If our sorrows and even suffering lead us to rely upon God more, to learn to appreciate His ways, if it leads to God's glory, if it serves as a testimony before others so that they can see why we are different, because of God's goodness, then we should work through even our sorrows with an attitude like Paul's, rejoicing in all things to the praise of God's grace and glory. I want to end with this quote by George Steiner. He says, The atheist knows of Good Friday and the cross. But what he knows is the injustice, the interminable suffering, the waste, and the brute enigma of death, which also largely make up not only the human condition, but the everyday fabric of his personal life. Right? He understands at least the cross through the, the perspective of what it, what it led Jesus to have to go to the cross as sin. But we, the Christians, know also about Sunday. To the Christian, that day is hope, both assured and precarious, both evident and beyond comprehension of resurrection, of a justice and a love that has conquered death. Sunday carries the name of hope, and ours is the long day's journey of Saturday. <laughs> I like that thought, kind of that in-between. My friends, the Christian life is sometimes a long day's journey of Saturday. And there are many sorrows that we experience. After all, we live in a world that still contains death and sin and frustration. But though it may be Saturday, Friday and the cross have already happened. And because of Christ's purchase of your salvation, if you love him, Sunday is coming. And one day... Incredibly soon, in comparison to the extent of eternity, it will be Sunday forever. What joy awaits us in eternity and is even now available to us. May that thought encourage you in these days of mourning our dear sister. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for What you have given us foremost, we are thankful for salvation through Christ. Father, we're thankful for earthly relationships, and even though it, it means that we often suffer pain and loss and grief and sorrow, Lord, we wouldn't give it up. We thank you, Lord, for refining us, for helping us to appreciate the love that you have for us for allowing us to love deeply others. And Father, even in the midst of loss, I pray that you would remind us of the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ, the joy that's had because of what you've done for us, but also what you do through us for others. And Lord, as Jesus told the disciples, no one can take our joy from us. Thank you, Lord, for us, for that, and, and for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.